Welcome everyone to episode 111, ALS Cell Death. I'm Dr. Kiki here with Dr. Dalen James, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies. Thank you so much for tuning in. How's it going over there, Dalen? Probably the best podcast I'm ever going to do. I don't know if it's the quality, but I'm on vacation. I got a margarita. I'm talking to my boy, Justin Achita. So I, I've never been happier. I'll be honest. I don't know if I'm going to be able to make the rant happen. To be honest. <laughs> I know. You're looking pretty yeah. unperturbable. I mean, you've got <laughs> the most relaxed looking and sounding that I think I've ever seen or heard you. Yes. So. Yes. <laughs> yes. If you could see me now with stem cell world, you would be a little bit jealous, but more disturbed, I think. <sighs> You're lucky. You're lucky. La vida wonderful right now at this moment. La vida dolce. La vida dolce. There we go. Un poquito on the words in Spanish. So. <laughs> how, how is it over there in Portland? Though? You got the. It's the snowing. Cold weather? It's been oh, snowing no. all day long. It's cold. I'm wearing right. multiple layers. <laughs> oh, no. Okay, listen, you're going to run the rent today. I want you to channel that. Yeah, I'm going to take that. my inner cold <laughs> intenseness. <laughs> I'll pull the rant out. You keep the Bring calm. Bring it to bear. You keep All that right. calm center for us. But, you know. We'll see. We'll get there. Right now, it's time to get down to business. Everyone, make sure you check us out at stemcellpodcast.com where you can not only subscribe to our newsletter, but you'll also find all of our past episodes and other great resources. Of course, you can follow us on social media at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook, and don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher so that new episodes will automatically download to your phone. We do have a wonderful show today. We are going to discuss a new discovery about lysosomes, ALS, and frontotemporal dementia with Dr. Justin Achita. And he's going to join us to talk about the methods and conclusions of his new paper that's recently published in Nature Medicine. Yep, Keeks, we're going to do that. But first, we're excited to remind listeners about Neural Cell News. Neural Cell News covers the latest top research in fields of neural development, neurodegeneration, neural signaling, and synaptic plasticity. In addition, research into the diagnosis, progression, cellular characteristics, and treatment of brain cancers, neural damage, and diseases such as Parkinson's, MS, Alzheimer's, and hello, ALS, which we're going to talk to my boy with about. The newsletter also covers industry news, events, and jobs in the neuroscience field. Subscribe for free at NeuralCellNews.com. That's www.NeuralCellNews.com. All right, Kiki, let's get started with this roundup. Okay, let's start it off with some relatively good news. We're going to talk about budget, U.S. government budget. We've talked off and on over the last couple of years about the science budget. And last year around this time, there was a huge uproar over possible cuts to NIH, NSF, and other science institutions of the government. But this last week... The latest budget request from President Trump, as opposed to getting double-digit cuts for most research agencies, it allowed a, there was a new congressional deal that's going to boost federal spending by nearly half a trillion dollars this year and next. The administration rescinded many of the planned cuts and instead requested flat funding at major research agencies. So it's not 
great news. There's a menu of narrower proposals to cut or kill a bunch of different research programs. And what people are hoping now is that Congress will ignore the blueprint for spending at this point and act on its own to independently bump up particular budgets of different agencies. The rollout of the plan for $4.4 trillion in federal spending in the 2019 fiscal year beginning the 1st of October capped a week of high-level political maneuvering that was confusing even for veteran Washington, D.C. hands. It adhered to the caps, was set out to call for boosting military spending by taking a huge bite out of domestic, including most research activities, and the result would have been a real bloodbath for science agencies. White House documents show proposing a 21% cut to overall federal spending on basic research, a 27% cut at the NIH, a 30% cut to the NSF, and a 22% cut to the Department of Energy's Office of Science. But Congress approved higher spending caps, and the result is that the cuts have disappeared for NIH, NSF, DOE, and replaced by, as we said, flat funding, which are is basically funding at 2017 levels. At NIH, this reversal turned a proposed $9.2 billion cut into a little bit of a gain for the agency. The White House also wants to cut the Environmental Protection Agency's $762 million Office of Science and Technology by 40% and eliminate several climate science programs. It also wants to kill NASA's Earth Science missions, five of them, eliminate the agency's $100 million education office and defund DOE's $306 million advanced research projects agency energy project. Research programs at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration would drop by nearly 40%, and agricultural research and USGS would take about a 20% hit. And so these are some of the programs that people are hoping that Congress will protect. We don't know if they will at this point. I think they will. I mean, they better, right? Yeah, I mean, hopefully there will be enough pull for Congress people to say, hey, my state benefits from funds going to these research programs or to these education programs, we should maintain it. And so when you have that kind of pushback from the local level to maintain economic influence in a region, then it can lead to bigger changes at the federal level. You know, but this, there's no promise at this point in time. These cuts could still happen. But, you know, the thing is, it's dumb. It's dumb. I think everybody agrees it's dumb. We need the innovation. We need the, you know, the economic boost that comes from these discoveries. So I, the only people that thought it was a good idea were within, I think, the White House. All rumors are like, yeah, yeah, no. And now they're going to impose, like, the sensible choice. I hope and I expect and I would be horribly disappointed if they did not. But I believe in American government, not in the White House, but in government. Yeah, I mean, and we all understand there are budget concerns and things need to be balanced. We all have, you know, our household budgets. If you're in research, you have your laboratory budget. These are things that people understand. Some things have to take cuts while other things are maintained or while other things get benefits. But at the same time, when we're looking at the future influence of research programs and education programs on the status and the economic and I guess also world status as a technological power of the United States. These are very important considerations. For sure.
but it's not a bloodbath. That is the take-home message. It's not a bloodbath. We've got some major organizations. So those of you who are waiting to hear about your NSF or NIH grant applications, you still may hear good news. <laughs> I'm not going to say <laughs> will hear good news because we all know there's a very small percentage of applicants who get through on those. But fingers crossed for everyone there. Moving forward, when we think about air pollution, normally what you what do you think of, Dalen? If you think of air pollution, what kind of things do you picture in your mind? The big smokestacks, you know, cars, combustible, all that stuff. Of course. Of course. And they have huge influences on air pollution. There is a study by uh, Brian McDonald. He presented his research at America, the American Association for the Advancement of Science meeting this last week. And he says in cities, the sources of air pollution are actually becoming much more diverse. His study was published in the February 16 issue of Science. And it's focused on a particular category of air pollutant called volatile organic compounds, or VOCs. And most of these are derived from petroleum. And so there are an array of these chemicals that vaporize very easily. And so as a vapor, make their way into the atmosphere. And some of them can be very harmful when inhaled. Molecules released by bleach and paint make people lightheaded. I don't tell people to go huff some bleach. That's not a great <laughs> idea. But beyond those immediate effects, VOCs can react with other molecules in the air, as oxygen and not nitrogen oxides. And they generate ozones as well as fine particulate matter. And high levels of fine particulate matter or soot make it hard to breathe and contribute to chronic lung problems. So over a period of six weeks, the researchers looked at air samples in Pasadena, which is, as if you're familiar with the Los Angeles, California Valley, it is very smoggy. It doesn't have great air quality unless the prevailing winds are taking the air offshore. They looked at air pollution from samples over six weeks. They also evaluated indoor air quality measurements made by other scientists and traced the molecules found in these air samples to their original sources using databases showing specific volatile organic compounds released by very specific products. And they found that consumer products that emit these volatile organic compounds have an outsized effect on air pollution. By mass, people use about 15 times more gas and diesel compared with soaps, shampoos, deodorants, air fresheners, glues, or cleaning sprays but these everyday products were responsible for 38% of the VOC emissions that they found, and gas and diesel emissions were only 32%. So these consumer products contributed as much, if not more, than fuel emissions in the Pasadena area. Consumer products also contributed just as much as fuels to chemical reactions that lead to ozone and fine particulate matter. And the emissions from consumer products also were larger than production of oil and gas, which are called upstream emissions. And so while this is just one data point in a city, now they know that other cities should be studied to find out if the same pattern is being followed because there's so many VOCs and they all react differently in the atmosphere, there's a lot to learn about what we are doing there. You know, I and my wife is crazy about these VOCs things. Hmm. 
The other part of that, I guess, not a lot of people talk about is that it's like not a generic air pollution like smog necessarily. A lot of these VOCs are endocrine disruptors. So there's a question of like the biological effect of these, this particular type of pollution may be completely different than what we are expecting. Hmm. So I think we need to pay particular attention to this because it may manifest in the healthcare landscape in a very different way, particularly in our kids, which is what terrifies me. Yeah, I think that point is a, a very important one to consider. And I was absolutely shocked that there was an, a, a larger effect from these consumer products than gas and diesel emissions. I mean, that to me was mind-blowing yeah. about this study. How like, much? How much needs to be out there to compete <laughs> with like fossil fuel exhaust? How much BOC has to be out there to compete with that? It's got to be a buttload, right? Yeah. Wow. Scary People stuff. are Can you give me something spraying less scary, things please? all over the place. Yeah. Oh, man. No, I have another scary thing, actually. Oh, of course I Here do. It doesn't have to do with you, though. It has to do with Southeast Asian Bornean orangutans. Hmm. Unfortunately, the orangutan is endangered and is poised to have even more population loss, according to a new study published in Current Biology on February 15th. Co-author Serge Wick, a biologist and ecologist at Liverpool John Moores University in England, says orangutan killing is likely the number one threat to orangutans. They looked at orangutan numbers in Borneo from 1999 to 2015, and they found a decline in the population of about 148,500 individuals. Majority of these losses came about in either intact or selectively logged forests where the orangutans live. And they found that humans hunt these forest-dwelling apes for food or to actually prevent the orangutans from raiding crops. People also kill adult orangutans to steal their babies for the international pet trade. Between 70,000 and 100,000 orangutans currently live on Borneo, which is higher than previous population estimates. So that's at least one little bit of good news. But these figures are based on the most extensive survey to date using ground and air monitoring of the species tree nests. And these orangutan populations look as though they are going to, they have declined by about 30% from 1973 to 2010. And the team of researchers publishing this paper calculate that further habitat destruction all by itself is going to lead to the loss of around 45,000 more of these apes. And then if you add hunting to it, it's likely a very lethal mix. Another bit of good news though around this is that Small groups of Bornean orangutans live in protected zones. And if they live in these protected zones and zones that are selectively logged, maybe they will likely avoid extinction. So orangutans, in the big sphere of things, large population is in decline, but these small populations in these isolated pockets of forest that are more or less protected may survive. But that's not good news for the species overall. Overall, I would say bad news. And, you know, it, it, this, all this attention that's being paid to uh, the use of non-human primates as research animals, I think, is, is justified. Because you just have to see one of these specials, see how these animals interact, their level of awareness. I think it would really change a lot of thinking about these animals and whether or not they should be protected. 
they're pretty smart guys, you know? They remind me of me. <laughs> Give you a little point for perspective there, exactly. My last story is a little bit better news. Researchers publishing in the Journal of Experimental Medicine on Valentine's Day, February 14th, found that lowering levels of a certain enzyme that's called BASE, B-A-C-E, BASE-1, was able to keep mouse brains clear of proteins that are a sign of Alzheimer's disease. So lowering the levels of the enzyme is known to keep nerve-damaging plaques from forming, but the disappearance of existing plaques was the new and unexpected aspect of this particular paper. So these mice were engineered to develop Alzheimer's disease. They had lots and lots of plaques of proteins in their brains. These proteins are clumps of amyloid beta protein fragments. And by the time the animals were 10 months old, which is an advanced age, middle age for mice, the mice that had a reduced amount of base one were not only clear of new plaques, but old plaques as well. And one hypothesis about how Alzheimer's disease develops is the amyloid cascade hypothesis, which is that bits of this amyloid beta protein glom together and they lead to deterioration of the nerve cells, eventual loss of the nerve cells, and dementia. We'll be talking about stuff related to this in the interview in a little bit that are seen in Alzheimer's disease. And if that theory is right, then it's possibility that targeting the base one enzyme might help patients. And so this is a potentially good target. This enzyme was discovered about 20 years ago, and initial studies turned the gene off for making base one in mice their entire lives. Those animals produced almost no amyloid beta, so they didn't go on to produce uh, Alzheimer's disease. However, and in humans, any drug that combats Alzheimer's disease by going after the enzyme would be given to adults and you would have a hard time, at least now, genetically modifying it into people at a young age. So the researchers who worked on this set out to learn what happens when mice who start life with normal amounts of base one lose the enzyme later in life. And researchers came to this discovery and are now looking at drugs that target base one. There are drugs that target base one already in development. The big challenge here, though, is that this enzyme has other jobs in the brain, such as potentially affecting the ability of nerve cells to communicate <laughs> properly. So it, this might be necessary for a drug to inhibit some but not all of the enzyme to prevent plaque formation, but also allow normal neuronal signaling. I think this is another entry, gives hope, but at this point, I'm a little bit desensitized to all the potential. I think we're making a lot of strides, but wow, with the unmet need here with Alzheimer's, it's ought to be done, and um, this is a good entry. Hey, base one, get on it. You know, even if everyone's like, oh, it's a target, this is this thing, if, if it never becomes anything in particular for drug development, it's at least one more piece of information about yeah. how the system as a whole works. Yeah, that's true. That's important in itself to understand. That's a fair point, Kiki. You're such an optimist. I try. I should be less cynical. I mean, I'm on vacation, right? You're... Damn it. <laughs> Bring oh, me some nice. news. Do you have good news? I'm going to turn around. I don't, unfortunately. The first bit I have today, Kiki, is not just not good news. It's really sad news. In, in lieu of one of my papers today, I'm going to talk 
briefly and take a few minutes to recognize a member, one of the greats in the stem cell world and a brilliant thinker, an amazing inspiration and role model who recently passed, Dr. Ihor Lamishka. For those of you who don't know Ihor, know about his work, I urge you to read a great article in this month's issue of Stem Cell Reports that recapped his life and his legacy. The article discusses how not only Ihor will be remembered for his pioneering work on embryonic and hematopoietic stem cells, but also for his wonderful sense of humor. And I think that's a real great touchstone because for me, you know, I had a, a very, I would say, superficial, but it was very meaningful to me, relationship with Ihor as a guy that I saw in science that was just so cool and was so smart, other level smart, but had such a great, I think, empathy and understanding what it was to be a scientist. I'm going to tell a short story about a buddy of mine who were fellows together. I'm not going to name just because, you know, whatever. I don't want to blow up the guy's spot. But we're um, at a conference, and he was very close with Ihor because he was his mentor. And we were at this conference as, like, young postdoc fellows at, in Vegas, of course. So you can imagine how dissolute that was. But that doesn't relate to Ihor. He's a total gentleman. But in the talk series, we were both given talks. And um, my friend, we'll call him Mr. Jones, Jones at the end, perhaps. And he was giving his talk, and because he was like a young postdoc investigator, they, he got totally shafted by the moderator, who like, although his talk was on time, and he had put aside time for questions, and there were questions, the moderator was just like, this young guy, who cares? And he took his question session away, and he was kind of demoralized, because there was interest, and you know, for a young postdoc, that's really important to get the feedback from the research community. It was a small group meeting, a lot of good investigators, so he, we were talking about it with Ihor in the, you know, in the intervening sessions. And so when Ihor came up to do his talk, you know, Ihor's big up and everyone's going to carve out whatever they need for Ihor's talk. So he talks, he's on time. And if you've ever heard him talk, his capacity for synthesis is amazing. And so he gives this perfect talk. And of course, there's a million people that want to ask questions, not because it wasn't clear, just because, you know, it got everyone stirred up. And when his question answer session came, he said, I am going to surrender my question and answer period to Dr. Jones, who was not allowed his question and answer period, and actually brought the guy back up on the stage to take questions. I thought it was the most wow. heart, you know, warming and inspirational thing for a guy, you know, no ego. Not, it was just like for him, it was just the right thing to do. And it, and it was so important to Dr. Jones, my friend. It was really important to me, and I think for everyone there, I think got a little bit of a lesson from him. So, Ivor, I love you. You were an inspiration to so many young scientists. So, rest in peace, my man. So, I'm a little emotional, and I had a margarita. <laughs> <laughs> but we're going to go on. Ivor, I know you'd be with me with that marg, right? You're drinking them up in heaven. That's right. So, now I'm going to get back to it. There's a, uh, a team of researchers at the University of Georgia's Regenerative Bioscience Center at Arun A, Biomedical, a UGA startup company. They developed a new treatment for stroke that reduces brain damage and accelerates the brain's natural healing tendencies in animal models. They published their findings just now in uh, Translational Stroke Research. The team is led by UGA professor Stephen Stice, as well as Nazrul Hoda of Augusta University. They created a treatment called AB126. It uses extracellular vesicles, we'll call them EVs, which are fluid-filled structures, otherwise known as exosomes, probably more commonly known as exosomes, 
But these are exosomes that are generated from human neural stem cells, all right? So it's a stem cell-derived non-cellular product. And, you know, the advantage of this is they're fully able to embed themselves in the bloodstream, these EVs. So they're like one of the more promising means of overcoming the limitations of cell-based therapies because you can deliver multiple doses. You could store the treatment on the shelf um, and administer treatment on demand. They're small in size. So the EV-based therapy, it can cross the barriers that cells can't. So, you know, getting down to the nitty-gritty, these researchers, they administered this AB-126 and used MRI scans to measure brain atrophy rate preclinical stroke models. This is rat models, which showed approximately 35% decrease in the size of injury and 50% reduction in brain tissue loss. Wow. This is something that hasn't been observed acutely in previous studies of exosome treatment of stroke, obviously, because it's relatively new therapy, but also compared to existing therapies for stroke, this is a pretty big deal. And it's not just in rodents. This was uh, replicated by Franklin West, associate professor of animal and dairy science, and uh, fellow members of the RBC using this porcine model, so a pig model of stroke that's the only one of its kind. They're the only ones that run this pig model. So based on these combined rat and pig Results, these preclinical results, Arun A, biomedical plans to begin human studies in 2019. That's right around the corner. We see phase one safety trials. And that's, you know, on an accelerated timetable because this therapy is non-cellular. And I feel like this is a kind of a trajectory that a lot of groups are willing and really excited to pursue because you avoid all the complications of having a live cell product. You just take the goodies that these cells make. So... An exciting opportunity there, biomedical, you know, we'll see how it plays out. People have been waiting, I think, for exosomes to have a clinical application for a while now. I think this is very exciting. I mean, there's so much, you know, after a stroke or so little at this point that we can do. It's all about stroke prevention and the hope that you can minimize the damage. But if there is some kind of cell therapy and now exosome therapy to treat stroke victims. I mean, this is, this can help people out so much to minimize the behavioral damage that comes after stroke. And then exosomes as well. I mean, I've heard that people are looking into them for potential, you know, anti-aging treatments and that the contents of the exosomes contain magical powers. <laughs> They're going to save <laughs> us all. <laughs> You're pretty much there on that. This is that we are thinking of these as like this magical little bags of goodies here. And we'll see if uh, we're really living in Hogwarts. If nothing else, it's giving us a new kind of avenue, a new means of addressing not only like treatment, I guess, the disease, but understanding some of the biological mechanisms, understanding some diseases like cancer in particular exosomes seem to be playing a really notable part. All right, on to it, on to it. Stem cells to grow mini kidneys. All right, so a pretty amazing first research funded by the Medical Research Council and Kidney Research UK. This funding helped researchers create human kidney tissue inside a living organism. Right, this tissue, and this is the big deal, it made urine. This is kidney tissue that was capable of producing urine. And it could one day, this approach, yield novel treatments for kidney disease, obviously, either you know, degenerative or acute kidney injury. So to do this, accomplish this, this was a research team led by professors Sue Kimber and Adrian Wolf, who are from the University of Manchester. They began with human embryonic stem cells that were grown in 
particular culture medium that was designed for kidney development, fostered kidney differentiation. And they turned these cells in these microscopic aggregates, like kidney organoids. And then they were combined with a gel that worked as a kind of connective tissue between these aggregates. And it was injected under the skin of mice, where it developed into the microscopic structural and functional kidney units known as nephrons. And this is the business end of it. Mm -hmm. These nephrons are what do the filtration job. And they parts all these organoid elements and specific constituents work together to filter blood and excrete a detectable amount of urine, which the researchers were able to confirm using this fluorescent stain means uh, methodology. This is published in stem cell reports, I should mention. While these mini kidneys, they're lacking this like vital vasculature, the arteries that would allow them to kind of function autonomously as an organ, the group has quotes. This is quoting Sue Kimber. We have proved beyond any doubt these structures function as kidney cells by filtering blood and producing urine. Though we can't yet say what percentage of function exists. But, you know, as a proof of principle study, I think it's really important. And it represents this first step of showing a functional output that you can get the constituents to work together to produce the output and provide the function of filtration. And now it's just a matter of kind of cobbling together a system that will allow these organoids to exist autonomously and perhaps even form kind of microorganisms. So, you know, we're moving closer and closer with this Kiki. It's so exciting because it's incremental steps, but yeah. like now no big deal. Okay, we made kidney organoids that function. Now next step. It's like we're cobbling together all the pieces of the puzzle. And I don't want to say we're going to be, or, you know, growing organs in a dish, but I think we're getting close to providing the functional elements of organs, maybe in a kind of translational treatment paradigm. So we'll see what happens, Kiki. I could use some new kidneys, I'm sure, after this vacation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the possibilities, I mean, for research function, for just trying to figure out how this stuff develops and how to foster the growth of these organoids and then onto organs themselves. But then beyond that, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just imagining I had this thought in my head from working with entomologists who would, as graduate students, inject botfly larvae under their skin and grow oh. little botflies and other, you know, it, that's an example of the, the lengths that researchers would go to. But I'm, I'm imagining, you know, researchers in these kidney organoids, you know, injecting little kidney stem cells, looking under their arm. Oh yeah, I've got a little kidney growing here in my elbow. I've got another kidney in my hip. <laughs> no kidding. I mean, I would just think distributed too, processing. Has anyone ever been more excited to see urine? I doubt it. I mean, that was a big deal seeing that urine output. So good job, postdocs. You know, I haven't been psyched about urine since my kid's first pee. So we could leave the hospital. That's right. <laughs> you know, moving on from the really inspiring to maybe the bizarre, but in the same vein, making organs ex vivo, how can we do that? How can we make replacements for the tremendous unmet need of organ transplants? Well, we talked to Jun Wu, um, we're approaching six months to a year ago, who did this in pigs. He made these human pig hybrids and actually got them pretty far along. And I know that they're continuing those experiments. And I know uh, there have been some kind of permissions, and, and uh, they've they've gained the uh, regulatory approvals, I guess you, you could say, to move into actually getting those um, conceptus to give birth and see what the contribution is. Well, we moved kind of past that, and in parallel to that, 
making human-sheep hybrids, which have been made by scientists from the, for the first time at Stanford University. What they did is they took human stem cells, they injected them into early-stage sheep embryos and grew that embryo, that chimeric embryo, inside a surrogate for three weeks, okay? And this is a really key point because three weeks is all that it's allowed. You can, you, you can only grow these human-sheep chimeras in this regulatory apparatus at Stanford and probably at large in California for three weeks. But the important point was that there was a significant contribution and it was a, a meaningful contribution that could perhaps one day, if you were to like derail the normal pancreas development of a sheep embryo, for example, and these stem cells could fill in and make a human pancreas within a sheep embryo, the idea is you could have a really good treatment for diabetes in that case. The team is about to apply for permission from regulators to lengthen the experiment to 70 days to see if they can get the human cells to really create a substantial an organ. At 70 days, you'll be able to clear, clearly see that organ formed, at least undergone all the morphogenetic aspects. It just needs to grow and mature after that. Previous scientists have hoped that uh, pig or sheep organs could be used for the transplant because it's like the same size as human, all, although you know, when you use the actual animal's organs, they're rejected, obviously. So this is kind of a new idea for that. But the pig that Jean Wu did, the efficiency wasn't quite as high. If you transplanted 40 to 50 embryos into pig surrogates, you would get 14 piglets, okay? So that's less than 50%. While transferring three to four sheep embryos brings a yield of up to three fetuses, okay? So you do the math there. It's clear it's, it's 75 to a hundred percent. I mean, clearly yeah. the number is very small here, and that's one of the a little bit uh, reason to be cautious about this. But still, it's an important result, and I should also mention that this is something that's not published. It was presented at the uh, American Association for the Advancement of Science meeting, which just took place. But I think this is kind of getting shooting this like three-week experiment off the bow, so that they can set the stage for getting regulatory approval that we'll see how far we can actually take this uh, as uh, far as organogenesis goes. I don't know, you gotta tell me how you feel about this. I, for one, would say that while this is amazing technical advance, I cannot imagine organs being grown in animals and chimeras being practical in the near term, I mean like 40 years, or maybe ethically feasible. But this isn't my thing, so I'm just, that's just my gut. What do you say? I mean, the sheep seem to have a higher viability rate and a success rate. And the question is, why are sheep so much better than pigs or, or cows? And is that the right species to be using as we move further down the road toward trying to grow organs in other species? But when you're talking about a chimera, you're not necessarily going to get only the liver being human. You know, you end up with cells mixed in a mosaic all over. Right. And it's like maybe one cell out of a million is human versus exactly. sheep. Exactly. Exactly. What's the so, fidelity on that, right? right? How many times do I have to do that to say I got the right eye? Like, I think it's really, it's good. It's a tough thing to say with any sense of assurance. So The success and how it's moving forward, I think there are a lot of stumbling blocks still. And I think you're right. Definitely not the next decade. Not five to ten years. Not right? five to ten yes. years. No. <laughs> not and yet. to be fair, I, I don't think any of these investigators would claim that. So no. still, kudos to these guys. They're really pushing the envelope. 
I congratulate them. As one who tried to do chimera experiments early on in my research career, I can say it's a really impressive achievement. All I know is it is like every time I'm like, science fiction, the future. I'm like, oh, it's here. The future is here. We're living <laughs> in the future right now. Forget about the future yep. future. The future is now. <laughs> it's already crazy. Do you have any other stories you want to talk about? Or are we? No, no. That's it for me, Kicks. Now, Let's move on. Now. All right. Then we will move on. It is about time for our interview. But before we jump into that, I just have to let everyone know well, you all do know already, organoids have become a really hot topic in stem cell research these days, especially in the neuroscience field. What exactly are cerebral organoids? In a recorded webinar, Dr. Madeline Lancaster describes her groundbreaking discovery in these mini brains are three-dimensional and grown from pluripotent stem cells. The organoids are organized in layers similar to the developing human brain, and this complexity makes them physiologically relevant models to study neurological development and disease. You can view this recorded webinar at www.stemcell.com mini brains. That's right. If you are interested in finding out about Dr. Lancaster's discovery and about these cerebral organoids, discovering more about them and just in general, or finding out how they might be relevant to your own research, stemcell.com slash mini brains. That's where you go to watch the webinar. Sounds really interesting, actually. So time for our interview though. Our guest today is Dr. Justin Achita, Assistant Professor in the Department of Stem Cell Biology and Regenerative Medicine at the University of Southern California and a New York Stem Cell Foundation Robertson investigator. Dr. Achita's laboratory creates in vitro models of human neurodegenerative diseases by converting patient cells into disease-affected neural cells. We spoke with him several years back about his use of direct reprogramming in his research, but his latest publication in Nature Medicine makes it time for a return. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Ichida. Oh, thank you. It's good to be back. It's wonderful to have you here. I was telling Dalen a little bit earlier that I feel like I have interviewed you before, but it's not that I have. It's just that he refers to you and your work all the time. So you are on this show constantly. <laughs> The joke is, Justin, I'm always being like, my boy, Justin, my boy, Justin. And meanwhile, you're over there probably like, who is this guy who's constantly claiming friendship with me? But we're friends, aren't we? Can you please verify? I can verify that we're good friends. And Daylon also has come up with some of the best nicknames for me over the years. So I don't know if he's mentioned, he's probably not mentioned that on the podcast. No, no, we're going to keep it PG, homie. We're going to keep it PG. (laughs) But it's good to have you back, man. I'm sorry I didn't get to talk to you the first time, so I'm really psyched about this. And again, I'm going to mellow out. We're not having drinks. Although I'm on vacation, I already let the audience know. I'm going to keep it civil. All right, let's have a good time. (laughs) Sounds good. Let's do that. All right, so you were on the show back in 2014, but maybe not everyone in our audience has listened to that episode. So let's just get started talking a little bit about what you do in your lab. So can you give our audience a bit more detail than what I gave a summary of in your introduction? You know, we're interested in identifying disease mechanisms and possible therapeutic targets for neurodegenerative diseases. We have a large focus on ALS, but we also work pretty extensively now on frontal temporal dementia and some tauopathies, also including Alzheimer's disease. Our major 
sort of discovery platform is IPSC modeling, but then we try to validate these findings in vivo as much as possible. So Justin, you know, of course I followed your career and you've grown up like I have in the era of this IPS. You've been there from the start. Stem cells from blastocysts to direct reprogramming, you know, IPS, everything. And I think you've been a big part of making the tools and some of the mechanistic insights there. Can you speak to how you've kind of set up or the arc you started with, you know, direct reprogramming, how you do it. And in this paper, you're kind of using the IPS cell platform to take it to a next level of discovery mechanism with therapeutic implications. Can you give us a kind of a, a whole view of how this paper fits into your research paradigm? That's a great question. I mean, it's true that we all started this. I mean, we all remember when IPS cells were first discovered and we were, you know, back at that point, people weren't even sure that they were really pluripotent stem cells. Then we've come a long way. And I think, you know, we spent a lot of time trying to find ways to make different neural cell types. And we direct reprogramming became a nice option that potentially could have sort of skipped the IPS reprogramming process, but it was completely brought on by the fact that you could make IPS cells. And so you theoretically could make any cell by the same sort of scheme. And that's how we got onto the direct reprogramming. But it turns out that when we started the lab, you know, the question was, do these directly reprogram cells or any sort of IPS derived cell, you know, do they really recapitulate disease processes, especially for things that are late onset like ALS? We actually started by doing direct reprogramming from adult fibroblasts, but at the time, I think the reprogramming approaches were not good enough to give us neurons that were neuronal enough to really recapitulate the disease in a dish. And so we actually started using sort of direct reprogramming of IPS cells, which is sort of a weird concept, but we found that by using the transcription factors to make motor neurons from the pluripotent state, these cells were just much easier to reprogram than adult fibroblasts. And we got really neuronal cells and we were able to see really bona fide ALS disease processes, which we could now in this paper, you know, we actually followed up and we could validate a lot of them in postmortem tissue from patients. So I think that's sort of like the arc. And I guess I would say we now feel pretty confident that we're actually seeing a lot of the relevant disease mechanisms in the dish. You are using adult cells from patients, but in this particular study, you used blood cells, not fibroblasts. How did you come to doing the, using the particular methodology that you did in this discovery of a genetic influence on ALS? It kind of came down to a matter of practicality. So I think most people, it definitely takes some time to establish, you know, a clinical collaboration where you can obtain samples from patients who are willing to donate. And for those who can do that, it's a tremendous resource, but it takes some time. And it turns out that the NINDS had been thinking about this for quite some time, even pre-2014. And so they had established a bank of patient samples, and they had probably dozens of ALS patient samples already. And so, but these were all stored essentially as lymphoblastoid lines. So they were originally blood samples, and then they made them into lymphoblastoid lines. And then these you could obtain from them at the time at no charge. So that's why we went that route, because we could get enough of the samples pretty much for free. 
Cost is always a consideration when you're looking at yeah. your research protocol. What yeah. was your rationale? It was free. There you go. I mean, there a, we lot go. Of, exactly. a lot of the most brilliant choices in life are made with that rationale in mind. Exactly. So I want to get down to the nitty gritty here just to, so we can get kind of transcend the science and get into the philosophical questions here. The thing that I find so fascinating is that there was a, it was kind of a forward approach in that you identified this open reading frame that is coding? Is it non-coding? You can answer that in the question but in a second, but it's associated with the disease and significant percentage, but the mechanism was unknown. Is that right? And then what did you do to kind of fill in the, the blanks there? That's right. This locus was initially identified, I think, through GWAS studies as being tightly linked to ALS disease risk. And it turns out that it's a repeat expansion mutation that is in the intron just upstream of the coding region of this gene. First of all, it was highly important because it's the most common known cause now of ALS. It's also one of the most common known causes of frontal temporal dementia. So that's an interesting tie where you got two different diseases stemming from the same mutation. Really, the mechanism was unknown. And so for those who wanted to identify therapies or develop therapies, you kind of had to know what was going on there because there were at least a couple of sort of opposing type of mechanisms where one, you know, it could be that long repeat expansion if it gets made into RNA and possibly into protein, even though there's no start codon, those products, since they're very repetitive and long, they could be toxic to neurons. So one approach might be to sort of knock down that transcript. But then on the other side, what people had noticed, even in the first paper describing the mutation, is that that mutation caused a, almost a complete loss, or like a 99% loss of protein, the downstream ORF protein produced from that allele. So loss of that protein, whatever its function may be, could also be important. And so that might mean you don't want to knock that down, that transcript down to even more. And so that's kind of what we set out to explore and we just took sort of an unbiased approach. And when we asked if the ORF protein itself of an unknown function was important, it turns out it was really important. And that actually, interestingly, sort of sensitized the cell to the sort of opposite mechanisms, the gain of function mechanisms, and they kind of work together to kill the neurons. You saw that there were issues with glutamate receptors causing excitotoxicity, and then there were also other effects that together just, it's like double whammy neurons dying. Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting because there's even evidence now, like in some of the clinical patients where some of the people that are carriers that have higher levels of CNI-NORF72 protein produced in their cells by some way, those people are seem to be protected against getting the disease, even though they have the repeat expansion. It really is seeming like it's a combination of really losing the function of the CNN-RF72 protein and then gaining toxicity from these many different mechanisms by which the repeat expansion itself can kind of cause detriment to the cell. So to that point, is that to say that, you know, in your paper there, you did these rescue experiments and ALS is a late onset. Is the idea that you could intercede in, in these patients and mitigate or completely stall the development of the disease symptoms? You know, what we kind of see in the dish is sort of the earliest things that start happening in neurons, in motor neurons from a very early, you know, stage of life. 
But I think it must be for some reason in, in vivo, there are mechanisms that protect the, that sort of counteract this and prevent it from being, from causing actual neurodegeneration until sometime late in life where those factors are no longer able to do that, protect against that. And so the nice thing is, you know, the genetic test for C9 is very easy. It's actually just a PCR and it could be detected essentially at birth. And there are some actual ASO therapies out there that are going into the clinic soon that they've actually made it such that you can actually knock down the mutant allele without affecting the normal allele. And so that might be pretty effective. Now, I don't know if it'll be so effective when they try it the first time where the patients are essentially pretty late stage. If that shows even a little bit of efficacy, then they'll be able to try it, you know, maybe even pre-onset. And that will be, I think, really effective. Is there any indication from this research? I mean, we're looking at this particular mutation leading to 10% of ALS cases and possibly 10% of the frontotemporal dementia. And so that suggests that this is the genetic influence, that there's something passed on heritably. Could this also be something that is a, a mutation that occurs during a person's lifetime? Is it, Could this affect other ALS and frontotemporal cases through other methods, whether it's epigenetic controls of protein levels? There are definitely documented cases now where a parent is sort of a carrier of a short repeat expansion, like 70 repeats or less. And that, keep in mind, normal people can have up to 20 repeats. And that person with the short repeats, even though slightly expanded, could be totally normal, no symptoms. But their children actually have the disease and they show a, a much more significant expansion. It looks like it could be arising or at least expanding and contracting over generations to the point where some people don't get it and then their progeny do get it or at least get the disease. There are probably possibly other mechanisms happening where you know, this repeat expansion, since it's so massive, it probably is changing the genome architecture to some extent. And that could be causing problems in other places that, first of all, that could be part of the mechanism that we don't really, we haven't even touched on. And that could be true for many repeat expansion diseases, actually. You mentioned it sounds very familiar. It sounds a lot like fragile X syndrome with the premutation, and this is kind of retreading the same question as Kiki here. But is this like a premutation within the same open reading frame that is this ten percent, or is there like ALS disease is the convergence of independent mutations in a spectrum of genes or loci, and they all manifest in the neuron? Or are we talking about a kind of premutation scenario where there's a premutation in that ORF? And then that gets expanded with the subsequent generations. I don't think that people have necessarily seen repeat expansions and then a combination. Oh, that might be true. They may have actually seen. I might be wrong. There may be some evidence of sort of more than one, like another ALS mutation and a C9-ORF mutation, which may suggest that it can possibly sensitize the patient to getting ALS if they have another mutation as well. But what is what we are looking at now is that if there are any loss of function mutations in C9ORF sort of enriched in the sporadic ALS sector, because I do think that that theoretically could be a risk factor for 
ALS. And so we're trying to gather more data from the available sequencing studies to see if, you know, having a loss of function mutation in that gene, which we showed in the paper, can really make the cell more prone to generation. If that is sort of a risk factor that is one of the ways you can get ALS in the sporadic population, probably compounded with another mutation. That idea, I think, is very realistic. And it's really important because the the sporadic sector is 90% of ALS, and we really don't know genetically what's causing that. So we don't even know if it's like many different mutations or many different single mutations or if it's a combination of mutations, you know, polygenic in each case or what's happening there. And it also sounds like this, uh, the loss of function tied to the the gain of function. So you've got the toxicity, you've got really an impairment of waste management in the neuron. And so you've got these lysosomes that because you have low protein levels, you're not getting functional lysosomes that are doing their jobs to clean things up appropriately. And then you have this, the expression of the disease. Is there some anything that you're working on currently that we can start considering for therapeutic purposes? So uh, for instance, mouse models and drug testing. So one thing is that we started a, a biotech company in hopes of translating some of these things that we're finding in some of these screens. And so they hope to make a PIK5 inhibitor that is much more stable in vivo, which is one of the sort of weaknesses of the compound that we identified in the actual screen. It's not very stable. But in the lab side, you know, we did a subsequent screen on all approved drugs to see what rescued the C9 motor neurons. And it's interesting there. I mean, we're finding some things that have been shown previously to work in some mouse models of ALS, and then some completely unexplored things. And, you know, the challenge there is that is actually getting some interest in the pharma landscape or I guess uh, population to really advance these. And one single approved drug is not, there's no real incentive for pharma companies to advance that just because they're not going to make a lot of money. But we've actually, because of that, we've been testing some combination, the pairwise combinations of all those drugs. And in hopes that we might find even, you know, synergistic, more potent effects, but also because any combinations could be classified as a new drug formulation. We've been finding that. And then I think the last phase of what we're trying to do right now is really see how applicable these pathways or hits are to the sporadic population. Because, you know, while C9 is kind of unique, it's really nice in the ALS case because it's actually so prevalent that you could get a clinical trial together where you have only C9 patients. But, you know, whereas all other trials are usually sort of just a mix of patients, and you don't know who's going to respond and who's not going to respond. But really, the big frontier is sort of the sporadic population. Nobody knows what works for those people and what's even wrong with those people. So we're trying to see if any of these hits work there. So yeah, along those lines, in terms of kind of garnering interest in the drug for a greater population, I warned you I was going to get philosophical, maybe not (laughs) philosophical as much as theoretical, but like it seems to me the idea that it's 10% that we know, and then there's a 90% sporadic. And fundamentally, I'll tell you, I've been hearing the same stories from my parents. You know, I'm getting a lot of repeat stories, and I find myself <laughs> doing the same thing. So more along the kind of dementia route, do you think there's a kind of prevailing mechanism for this kind of like memory, let's say, obfuscation? 
And right. like, if you have something that could work for ALS, maybe in a different or whatever refined form, could be applied just for like retaining a strong memory. Like, is that like in your sphere? Or is that something that you're thinking about? I'm sure you've thought about it, but do you think that's practical? Yeah, I think it's probably practical in certain ways because, you know, this, for example, this one mutation causes dementia and it causes ALS. So, likely, especially for this form, and if there are other forms that are like that, you know, you're going to find things that work for both diseases at the same time. I kind of think of it analogously to cancer, where there are probably many different mutations that can cause the cancer upstream, but then they sort of converge into a common phenotype, which is the cells replicating out of control. And it's the same, I think, for neurodegenerative diseases. There are probably targets that will, at the more downstream part of the mechanism, block you know, neuronal death in a number of different diseases. And those might be somewhat effective. But then I think to really get additional efficacy, you want to start being able to target those upstream mechanisms, you know, right at the mutation level, for example. And those, I think, will definitely be different from mutation to mutation. So there's going to be a mixture. There are going to be things that probably work across diseases and other things that are more targeted. And we'll have to see how those play out, whether, you know, in 50 years from now, we're going to have kind of a mixture of those approaches for any given patient to be effective. I just keep coming back to the idea here of this being an issue of the, at its basis, is you've got one of the alleles mutated and not working correctly. The other one can't keep up with the need of the neuron on its own. So you need something to get in there and either upregulate the one good allele that you have and get the protein levels up to the level that you, that the neurons need. And maybe that's part of counteracting the glutamate receptor issue. If you get enough protein, does that counteract that other, the other side of the equation? I'm glad that it, that point came across clearly to someone not even exactly in this field of ALS, you know, so, but that's exactly right. So I think that it presents a new possible target where you could, if you could restore the protein levels somehow, I think that would really work well. You know, there are even ways in which you might be able to administer the protein itself, you know, because it seems to act in the sort of endosomal, lysosomal pathway, you know, it could perhaps, if it was taken up into the cell through an endosomal endocytosis process, it would already be in the right place for it to be doing its activity. So, you know, if you could get it in at high enough levels into the CNS. Final tap. Just right in there. Yes, finally. <laughs> there's some interesting, you know, there's some really interesting technologies out there where, you know, for example, you can produce proteins at high levels in the liver and they actually get into the CNS at a pretty reasonable rate because there's so much of it going around the blood. Interesting stuff that's out there. So a lot of different possible approaches. So along those lines, in terms of implementation, are you, I know you start a company and you're counting your money. But are you guys going with like a pharmacological paradigm? Oh, or are you just so far, going money is, I'm just counting my money going away from me and into the country. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You're counting yes. your panties. <laughs> but um, are you imagining, or I guess, are you envisioning the whole spectrum? Are you trying everything? Because, you know, there's all these ways with the protein transduction, CRISPR. Are you, are you looking across the board? Are you guys really focused on... And without, you know, giving too much away, what's your approach there in taking this to kind of translating this? 
that's sort of the million dollar question. And I think with a small startup, you know, it's hard to, you're nimble, but at the same time, your bandwidth is sort of limited. So you have to sort of focus on something because our team has a lot of small molecule experience. We've been focusing on that. And we've also set up a program that is kind of unique where I think we're going to be doing personalized medicine for patients. And what that's going to help us do is really address the sporadic ALS population, which is really not being addressed very well. I think all of the most of the major, you know, therapies in development for ALS are kind of geared towards the familial, the known genetic population. But, you know, there, I would say that amongst all the approaches that are out there, I really like the anti-sense oligo approach because it's, you know, it's already been shown to work well for spinal muscular atrophy. So there is a drug approval last year or even December 2016, I think, by Ionis and Biogen. And the nice thing about that is I think for certain forms of the diseases, neurodegenerative diseases, there's a very clear target, which is that you just need to suppress like the protein that is making the toxicity, or at least thought to be making the toxicity. So there are some clear cases of the of neurodegenerative diseases where, you know, if you just knock this protein down, it'll likely be effective. And so for that, I think the ASOs are good. That's really one good option. We haven't been doing too much of that, but I think what we want to do going forward is identify what targets are like that for the sporadic sector where we just need to knock them down. And if we find those, then we can, I think those are readily translatable into the clinic with, you know, things like ASOs. As you move forward along this personalized medicine treatment route, you know, ALS is, you know, especially as you said, with the sporadic population, a really big target population of people that you could work with. Are there other diseases that you're looking at that you're considering this approach for as well? Yeah, so we're doing a lot of work on tauopathies, including frontal temporal dementia and Alzheimer's disease. There's a lot of room to really even understand what's causing the neurodegeneration. And, and what's kind of interesting is that there seems to be definitely a primary defect in the neurons, but then some of the surrounding cells seem to play a big role. Like, in, for example, in Alzheimer's disease, a lot of the mutations identified by GWAS studies or the variants by GWAS studies that are linked to AD are really seems to be acting in microglial cells. And there's also this huge movement as well as sort of the, the blood-brain barrier breakdown being a major contributor or even an initiator to the disease. And so the IPSC models allow you to sort of explore all of those things at a very high resolution, at least for, from the cell biology perspective. So I think for AD and other tauopathies, you know, we're increasingly moving that direction. All right, Justin, you know, we're closing in here and uh, I just like to get an idea. You know, we talked about your startup thing, which is your private endeavor there, but you are also a basic investigator, major research institute with your own lab. You're a young guy. Talk to us about the funding landscape. You know, we just talked uh, in the roundup about the resolution of the budget crisis there. And it looks like NIH is getting more money, but it doesn't really make it that much easier for young investigators. What's been your experience? What are the boons of having a USC, the Keck Foundation, I know, take care of you? Tell us a little bit about your navigation of the funding and how that kind of meshes with you starting your own private endeavor and how poor you are, please. Tell me. Yeah, so I think what's been absolutely critical are the private 
foundations and also from the government perspective, I think doing sort of translational or, or at least disease-related research. So things like NICEF have been huge. I mean, you know, that money allows you to do a lot of things that you wouldn't be able to do otherwise. There's also interesting things that are formed like the Tau Consortium. They're totally private, but it's really for people interested in identifying therapies for tauopathies. So for people that have sort of unique platforms in their lab, it's a really good way to get into that disease applied research and make a difference. You know, I think from the government perspective, we've been fortunate that at this point, the government has increased their funding for, you know, disease research and particularly Alzheimer's disease research. And I think that's good. But at the same time, I have many colleagues that don't do such applied research and they're definitely very basic science, which is also critical. And I think that is difficult right now. I think that is something that, you know, we shouldn't lose track of trying to support. And they don't have as many private funding sources as people studying, you know, neurodegeneration. So that's probably something that has to be addressed. You know, I think from what I've heard from other colleagues, too, is that after the early stages, when you're not available or eligible for the sort of early career awards, when you're sort of into mid-career, that time gets challenging, too. So, you know, we're sort of getting there now, all of us. And so we'll have to see how we can navigate that better. Yeah, the funding plateau period. Right. (laughs) (laughs) That is an issue across the board for where, like you said, young investigators, there may be more opportunities to get you started. And then once you've been around for a long time, you've got your research cachet, and maybe it's a little easier to get funding. You have more experience and you have a lot more papers under your belt. But in that, yeah, mid-career stage, I have heard a lot about a lot of people really looking into the technology transfer direction like you're doing with your startup as a mode of bridging that gap. So I wonder how far that's going to go for people. Yeah, I mean, one thing I would say that's actually been really nice is this SBIR grant mechanism, this is NIH. So if you do end up starting a company or working with a small company, it's actually very good for funding. I mean, I think you know, those grants can be as large as R01s. And it's just not as competitive yet because there's not as many people applying for those. And But they're you know, great grants. They do really well. I wondered about those. Do you, does the government take a piece of the IP on that? Do they, you no, know, when they're splitting up the royalties? No, it's an amazing program, actually, because it's they don't take any piece of the IP and they're, it's non-dilutive, so they don't take any ownership of the company it's an amazing mechanism hmm. for sort of promoting small business innovation. Good luck with your small business, your startup, as it moves forward. And congratulations once again on this discovery, on this paper. On, I mean, you worked really hard to get this out. So congratulations on that. And thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. I mean, I, you know, I know a lot of people that listen to this podcast, so you guys are doing a great job. I mean, you're, you're famous in the stem cell community. <laughs> oh, please. Uh, you know who's famous? I'll tell you one nickname. I'll tell you one nickname we had for my boy here. And he, they call him the cheetah because he moves fast. All right. So we got to keep our eye on this guy. Yeah. He'll be back again, back on the podcast with another amazing paper in just a couple of years. I'm sure of it. Oh, so. <laughs> Thanks a lot, guys. Thank you. Great to have you, buddy. 
My man, Justin Achita, always so smooth in his delivery. I love this guy so much. He's a guy that you would love to have as your PI. If you got any uh, aspirations to do a great postdoc, please go to this guy. He's also at the University of Southern California. All right, enough said. Get there. Do it. Make a big accomplishment happen in your life. That's right. Be in Southern California where it's sunny and 70 most of the time and not snowing like it is right now in Portland. <laughs> I'm still cold. That was a very, oh, I really enjoyed the interview, but I'm still cold. <laughs> and you're bitter and you're bitter. And Come I'm on, bitter. nurture it. Nurture it. And segue directly. Kate, take that anger and use it. I know. Right Right into our SCP rant. That's where I'm going to take it because this is our chance to complain, be bitter about something that bothers us and that most likely bothers you. And Dalen, I'm a little upset that you are wearing a t-shirt and you're comfortable and on vacation in a warm climate. It must just be so easy breezy. All the time where you are. Yeah. It is. I'm not going to lie. It's pretty nice. It's pretty (laughs) nice. But I can still find a little bit to be upset about. And in this case, it would be, you know, the little, little things, the little rigmarole that the big companies make you go through in order to get your money back. Anytime you get like, you know, the charge that you didn't pay, you didn't actually get the service and it's on your car and you call them. And they're giving you the whole runaround. You're on hold for 15, you know, to 17 hours. Kiki, I'm convinced that there's a the whole hold system at this day and age. Mm-hmm. For goodness sake, can we not funnel these calls? Do we really have to be on hold? Aren't there robots that can do this and start these cases? I think they make you wait just so that you'll give up. At least that's what I do because I'm on effing vacation. All right. I'm not going to, you know, dispute my charge. I got to get to those margaritas. You do. You're not going to waste your vacation time sitting on the phone, waiting, listening to the Muzak. Hell no. It's really not good. And sometimes it's piped in. Have you ever been on those phone calls while you're waiting? And it's like some radio station that isn't even in tune. So it's like a little staticky. And it's, (laughs) (laughs) that's like the worst. It's like insult to injury right there. It's like like, making an effort at least. Come on. At least tune me in. That's right. At least pick a station that has a good signal. (laughs) Yeah. This morning for, I mean, I went to the pharmacy to pick up a prescription for my child and it's the insurance company, the insurance company, the pharmacist looks at me and says, oh, your child, the insurance company is declining this charge because of some technicality, some something that wasn't sitting right in their system. And I'm, I've worked with the insurance company for the last eight months already. How come you're they're not acknowledging my son this one time? So of course the pharmacist says, well, if you keep the receipt and then you go and you talk to your insurance company and get it cleared up, you can bring your receipt back within a week and we can recharge the company. And so now I'm like, I have to deal with this within the week. It has to get done if I want to not have the money completely come out of pocket. The insur- I have to deal with the insurance company who's going to put me on hold or do some kind of runaround. And that time, all that time costs you, right? If I don't have, it's my time. Yeah, exactly. My time's worth something. I want to go on vacation. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll be honest. My time worth right now is worth nothing. But your time, seriously, like you got to spend an hour dealing with that, right? No. Your you des- your time is worth some good money. I can attest to that. It's right. certainly worth more than the twelve dollars you're fighting for. So what do you do? You say forget this. 
you get angry, and then the cycle restarts. You know, because you're going to get your kid's medicine because he's got the bronchitis, and you know he's got to get well. Exactly. We're not going to let something bad happen. Exactly. That's what the insurance company's betting on, and they win big. And the consumer, what did we say? The consumer always pays. Oh, yes. This is the problem. <laughs> it used to be the customer's always right. Now it's the customer always pays. And, you know, it's always big business. They have us over a barrel. Darn it. I need a margarita, too, at this point. I'm going to wear Come a... on down, baby geeks. I got you lined up. That's awesome. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to warm up. I'm going to, we're going to finish this podcast now. I'm going to get myself a nice cup of tea, put on my bunny slippers and another sweater, wander around the house, <laughs> go take care of my sick child. You enjoy your vacation. Everyone out there, uh, let's put on some optimism and a happy face for the next couple of weeks before you come back to us again. And in the meantime, send us your rant ideas on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or email info at stemcellpodcast.com. That does it. That concludes episode 111 of the Stem Cell Podcast. Be sure to tune in for our next one. Thank you so much, Dalen. Hasta la vista, my dear.